Welcome to Pick Me Up, I'm Scared, the podcast. I'm your host, Madeline. And I'm your co-host, Kenna. Uh, So, Kenna, today I wanted to ask you, what do serial killers and U.S. politicians have in common? Oh, <laughs> do you have the time? Uh, I This sounds like a joke, uh, which I don't know the exact answer to, but I'm guessing there's some sort of fucked up similarity. Yeah. Um. Well, what I had down is that uh, they're shitty and they might be that way because of lead poisoning. Oh, okay. Yeah. I have heard something about um, lead poisoning being correlated to crime. Yes, that is the lead crime hypothesis is what it's called. Um, So statistically in the U.S., you know, we're the safest we've ever been as a country. For the past 30 years, violent crime rates have been plummeting here, falling over 50%, along with property crimes, which have fallen by 43%. Um, And you know how our, our culture has like an obsession with crime, obviously. We consume crime as entertainment, and that obsession also translates into serial killers, right? Like, every media thing you consume seems to revolve around a serial killer in some way now. Um, it made me think of that Morrissey song, Last of the Famous International Playboys. You know that song? <laughs> yes, I can't remember the lyrics. I know um, I know. we hate Morrissey, and he is a bad person. But that song is kind of funny. It's about um, how somebody became a serial killer just for the attention. You know, I never wanted to kill. I'm not naturally evil. But um, it's like a parody about how in the United States we give all these attention to people who do really, really bad things. And that's kind of what it made me think about with all of the media sensationalization. So like random murders have always been extremely rare. If you're going to get murdered, which already in the United States is very rare, like you're 36.7 times more likely to die of heart disease. Uh, there's an over 75% chance that it's someone you know. Uh, and if you're a woman or a woman-adjacent person like us, uh, we're most likely to be killed at the hands of an intimate partner. But even given how rare this phenomenon has always been, it's even more rare now. In 1987, you would have been 6.3 times more likely to be killed at the hands of a serial killer than you would have in 2015. So that's like an over 600% more. Why were the 70s and 80s just a wild time for serial killers? Yeah, I don't know. And also, I was one year old in 1987, so that like statistic really stuck out to me because that's just over the course of my life. Yeah, I saw something about the, I was watching the documentary uh, about the Golden State Killer. Oh, yeah. And the uh, woman who wrote uh, the book about him and helped, I believe, solve the crime. But yeah, I was like, looking at some of the things I'm like, and it's like up till 1984. I'm like, that is a year before I was born. Yeah. um, I think the woman who was writing the book was Patton Oswalt's wife. Mm-hmm. Yes, um, and she tragically died very suddenly before it could be completed, not at the hands of a serial killer, uh, of some sort of natural cause. And it was I remember that the day that um, I saw him tweet about that. It was very, very sad. Yeah, uh, the documentary on HBO that's out now about it uh, features, features oh, her, Michelle okay. McNamara, I believe. Yes, name. well, okay, so you kind of nailed it. In the 70s and 80s, there was a, a comparative epidemic of over 700 serial killers operating in the United States. And by the 2010s, that number went down to around 100, maybe. And they're, you know, committing far fewer murders each on average than what we saw 
in the heyday, if there's a heyday for serial killers than oh, what God. it was. <laughs> um, so, but nobody can quite figure out why this is happening. Some people have linked it to increased access to contraception and abortion. Uh, some people have tried to argue it was mass incarceration. Um, I, I know that one's not real because we know statistically that um, prisons don't make anybody safer. They actually increase somebody's odds of reoffending by roughly 7%. Um, so some people thought that maybe it might have to do with drugs like pharmaceuticals or therapy, but nobody can figure it out completely. I saw another documentary about um, uh, this woman who studies uh, serial killers and violent um, murderers. And her claim was all of the, um, you know, quote unquote, evil people actually were suffering um, injuries suffered during childhood. Um, that caused them to have a life where they were more, more likely to commit crime. Yes. Okay. So all of this is really interesting. But the theory we're here today to talk about is the one that's recently been picking up a lot of steam. And it is the lead crime hypothesis. Ooh. So we all uh, know that like when you get your gas, it says unleaded, right? Yeah. Uh, I didn't realize that that's because up until 1973, pretty much all gas had lead in it. And um, this wasn't really shocking at the time because lead was like in everything in the United States, in the pipes that carried our drinking water. Um, and still, I believe there's lead in the drinking water in Flint, Michigan, because of the pipes in our paint and yeah, in our gasoline. So traces of lead literally filled the air in the form of car exhaust, which settled on roads and public grounds, pretty much everywhere within range of vehicles and vehicles pretty much everywhere. So in the 1960s, the average American had up to 20 micrograms per deciliter of lead in their blood. Uh, for reference, now, if anybody has over 10, that's considered very high and like Whoa. a problem that needs to be addressed. Oh my God. So the reason it's considered high is that lead is extremely toxic. It's extremely poisonous and it's especially bad for young children. It leads to neurological damage that contributes to hyperactivity, lower cognitive function, and behavioral issues later in life, including more aggression, poor impulse control, less empathy for others, uh, poor verbal reasoning, I just had a struggle with verbal there, less mental flexibility, and more troubled interpersonal relationships later in life. So this all started to kind of pick up steam because in 1994, a HUD consultant found that removing lead paint from housing decreased chances of small children developing these types of complications later in life. But while he was doing the study, um, he took it one step further and looked into gasoline and found it to be the biggest source of lead in the post-war United States. Lead emissions from cars grew from the 1940s through the early 1970s, during which time it nearly quadrupled as more and more people started driving. However, in 1973, laws started being passed, transitioning to uh, the much safer unleaded gasoline, which caused these emissions to plummet. And this created kind of like a U-shape, if you were to look at it on a graph with the peak of emissions at the early 70s and falling down from there. And when he looked at violent crime rates around 20 years later, he found that they had the exact same, same U-shape. And I mean like nearly exact, just offset by 23 years. So this guy found that accounting for a lag time of 23 years, lead car emissions account for 90% of the change in violent crime rates in the United States. Whoa. Young children who were exposed to high amounts of lead in the 40s and 50s were actually more likely to, yes, become violent criminals in the 60s, 70s, and 80s. Children born after this time period, by contrast, were exposed to significantly less lead in their childhood, which happens to correlate with a huge downward slide in violent crime that we see today. 
And this theory has actually gained traction in recent years because the more people look into it, the more plausible it seems. Two authors, James Feigenbaum and Christopher Muller, compared data from cities with lead pipes in a time period to homicide rates 20 years later, uh, once children exposed to that lead had grown up, and they found an extremely high correlation between the two. Some studies have found that if you make a map of high lead concentration in a group of neighborhoods, then make a map of high homicide rates in those same neighborhoods 15 to 20 years later, overlying the two creates a practically identical map. Whoa, trippy. So Kim Dietrich, a neuropsychologist who studies lead poisoning and its effects, has described the behavior of subjects exposed to such poisoning by saying, quote, it isn't conducive to behavior we associate with normal development, making smart decisions or success. This, some people... Oh, because of this, some people seem to think that the Clean Air Act alone accounts for one-third of the drop in crime throughout the 1990s. <laughs> which is wild. So save the planet so you don't get murdered by serial killers. Oh, I mean, it makes total That's sense. That's a good hot take, right? <laughs> okay, so who were the children in the 1940s and 50s getting exposed to all of this lead? Um, uh, serial killers it was, and politicians. It was baby boomers. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, I'm like, oh yeah, they they are. I mean, um, they were born between 1946 and 1964, and you you were kind of right though because uh, they also have accounted for 62 percent of all serial killers in recent U.S. history. Whoa. Yes. Uh, anyone alive today knows that we love to blame baby boomers for like every horrible thing that's happened in recent <laughs> U.S. history, from failing to act on climate change to destroying the middle class, and it's easy to do it because today. Baby boomers also represent 56% of all Congress people, despite only being like 21% of the population. Of course. And it does frequently seem like they don't really care about anybody but themselves. Um, this one guy, Bruce Cannon Gibney, wrote a book called A Generation of Sociopaths, How the Baby Boomers Betrayed America, <laughs> where he described boomers as, quote, the sociopath generation, saying, quote, one of the key indicators for sociopathy is a lack of empathy. So you don't just care for people other than yourself. So in the case of Social Security, the Social Security Administration projects the trust fund will be depleted by 2034. But by 2034, the median boomer will be dead. And the same sort of dynamic applies to the national debt, which will reach crisis levels in the next 20 years. And the same logic applies to, or lack thereof, climate change, which is a problem whose most significant impacts are expected from the late 2030s on. But any cost of remediation must be borne today and would therefore imperil the entitlement budget. So they're deeply focused on maximizing consumption now without regard to problems that are going to be post-mortem, end quote. Uh, Philadelphia Magazine, while I was just Googling why people hate baby boomers so much, referred to them as, quote, a generation of narcissists. And even Psychology Today said, quote, compared to their parents, the greatest generation who heroically fought two world wars, boomers look fat and pampered, self-indulgent and oblivious. Um, you know, the fat word we probably didn't need in there, but I, I just read all this and was like, wow, people really hate them. Uh, and it's these same people in power who are mostly us baby boomers telling us that now we can't afford things like universal health care or free college, despite the fact that most other wealthy nations have these things. And we could never possibly just give unhoused people free homes while they, mostly baby boomers, get to control uh, over 57% of the country's total wealth and have put in place economic policies that have resulted in adults under 40 accumulating less and less wealth over the past 30 years. 
cut nearly in half since 1989. Wow. Um, also, uh, I read, I was listening to this thing about the silent generation, which Joe Biden is a member of. Yes. Which is between the greatest generation and the baby boomers. And apparently they had like the greatest moment of like prosperity, like growing up and like opportunity in human history. Wow. Well, who said? Yeah. According Recent to the people, history. you know, who, who make the news. No. Yeah. <laughs> but um, so I think about that, too. Like they also got like they got it cushy. They Do got not forget cushy. the silent generation. The silent generation, though, I think they're like less than 20% of Congress that now or true. something. So they're not harming us so actively. That is true. <laughs> um, <laughs> so in addition to creating problems for future generations, the lead poisoning of the baby boomer generation has also created issues for them as well. Researcher Hui Zhang of the Ohio State University found a study that the cognition scores of baby boomers are lacking currently with a distinct drop in mental capacity compared to other generations as they approach the same age, which neurologists attribute to many potential things ranging from poor nutrition to overuse of antibiotics and yes, to lead poisoning. According to Zhang, cognitive function has been improving from the greatest generation to late children of the depression and war babies, but then significantly declines since the early baby boomers and continues into mid baby boomers. So while right now it's easy for us to paint them as social villains, because obviously they're doing all these things that are bad for every other generation that comes after them as baby boomers age, they actually may be in increasingly vulnerable positions because as they become elderly, they're key targets for things like elder abuse, which affects one in six people aged 60 and up. And the decline in cognitive function may be a pressing issue in their being taken advantage of or harmed as they age into like an elderly status. Um, and all of that kind of brings us to what I think is the eternal issue of interpersonal conflict in adulthood. At what point do you hold people accountable for their actions? And at what point do you defer to empathy because Perhaps they're experiencing a situation that makes certain executive function literally out of their physical control. And I don't know, but I feel like everyone has to decide that for themselves and differently. I struggle with that too, because on one hand, I'm like, why did this person do that? And then I'm like, oh, well, they did this because the system in place is messed up and not meant to serve the majority of people. Like, it's, it's hard. It's hard. It's hard. And the it's wild that something just as simple as lead could be potentially responsible um, for so many, so many unforeseen things. And like the thing about the the Clean Air Act potentially reducing violent crime by a third. I mean, that's something you don't ever think about. Right. Like that would never occur to me. And when we talk about things like climate change, like that's actually an issue that is so widespread and affects more than just the planet. It's it's so funny because I do think that doing things that are good have a snowballing effect. It's like the rat study, right? Where um, they gave rats access to drugs and then they give them like really bad lives and the rats just did the drugs all day. And then they gave them like really cush, amazing like rat mansions and like beautiful rat lives. And the rats were like, oh, I don't really need the drugs. Like people just like for, you know, like for example, I think that climate change, yeah, we don't want to burn up the planet. Like we don't, we want to live. Yes. Like I think that's a lot of people's pressing issue, but I, I think like, People don't realize like it's it makes us feel good to have like nice clean air to have like a nice environment and when we feel good we um, pass that along to other people. I 
you know, notice that when people are grumpy or when I grumpy, they tend to be grumpy to other people. It cascades down. And even though that's like kind of a silly example, I do think that doing stuff for your environment and other people um, has more of a benefit than than we than we know than our little human brains can process well it's obviously true because when we put in these little things you know we try to do the right thing like throughout history sometimes we do have these effects like this years later which obviously the results about the lead poisoning are inconclusive and it's just correlative data but when you look at that correlative data it's a pretty it it's pretty compelling evidence and there's a reason why like now we take lead poisoning so seriously um and I also was, as I was reading, I found that some people are starting to find correlative, like, um, lines drawn between lead poisoning and ADHD. And I know, and as a person with ADHD, which I just found out recently, that was really interesting to me because a lot of lead is still present in today in low income neighborhoods. Um, in my building, they had to give us a lead paint warning. Yes. So, um, like we're lower income people are constantly being exposed to these types of toxins still to this day. And, um, it's like a thing that now maybe is a social justice issue too because you look and you're like okay well we've recognized like lead is not good for children to be around yet the priorities for clearing lead out of like old homes or schools has fallen obviously mostly to the white middle middle class neighborhoods where this is happening and now we still have a lead epidemic in many places in the united states it's just not being treated as such a pressing issue yeah, and one thing about lead paint that I recently learned is that kids love to eat it because it's sweet. Really? <laughs> yes. They yeah, it, it's it's sweet. I think like pets too, but like oh, little no. children in in houses with old paint are known to have picked the paint off the wall and and eat it because it's it's sweet. Oh, that makes sense because I know there's like this saying about like eating paint chips. Yes, I think that that is maybe where it came from. <laughs> oh my gosh, yeah, I had no idea. I mean, just the idea that in the 60s and 70s, just the air was filled with lead everywhere you went and you were <sighs> inhaling this toxic, noxious chemical. I mean, that's a pretty interesting thing too. And it also ties into that whole, the thing about psychopaths and like sociopathy the guy who wrote the book about all the baby boomers being sociopaths um i know like sociopath sociopathy and psychopathy like now i think it's referred to more as narcissistic personality disorder and like the dsm maybe or some oh i don't know anything yeah oh my god <laughs> but that's interesting too because you're like well how much what what about that is real? What about that, like you were saying, is the result of like environmental factors? I think they've also found that people who are more aggressive and violent later in life often suffer from brain trauma, sometimes from injuries. Yeah, that that's like the, the documentary I was watching where a lot of like violent criminals are found to have brain traumatic brain injuries when they were children yes or, or some sort of traumatic injury when they were children yeah i think that's really interesting too because it plays into how we treat crime like in we talked about this before like how in our country we view crime as this very punitive thing it's like you you do a bad and now we punish you and we the reward for us as a society comes from taking joy in your punishment mm-hmm. rather than realizing that um the reward for us as a society might be more to figure out why crimes are being committed and treat those root causes and like maybe that's where 
you know, most of the justice actually is because you can put all the people you want in jail. You can throw everybody in jail. But when you look at something and you're like, well, that didn't actually have as much of an effect on crime as the simple thing, uh, which was addressing the root issue of hostility in our culture, which was lead poisoning and removing the lead poisoning. And then you see the crime rates drop potentially, or also perhaps it was linked, you know, to access to contraception and abortion. You could look at that and be like, oh, this probably actually does more to reduce crime than, you know, throwing people in prison. So it's like, ties into, I think, to this, the, the punitive obsession, the obsession we have with what we consider justice, which actually doesn't help victims, doesn't make communities safer. It's just about punishing people. And that, when you do it that way, it kind of ignores the fact that um, the reasons why some people end up doing bad things are environmental, are traumatic, and those things actually can be addressed. We just have to care enough to try to address them. Absolutely. And this is the thing we've talked about too, about how um, in the growing like prison abolition movement, you know, this has always been a focus of prison abolition is treating the root cause of crime. And now you get pushback from people who are like, oh, you're like an apologist for these criminals, these people who do bad things, which I think is really interesting because as we've talked about, like you don't have to be an apologist to recognize the reasons why people do something like there is that line where people should still be held accountable for their actions. Definitely. But it serves nobody as a culture to ignore the reasons that people have done harmful things in society just because you want to focus so much on the punishment. Like there's room for both accountability and problem solving. And it's the problem solving that actually creates fewer victims of crime in the future that actually makes communities safer in the future. And it's almost like sometimes I feel as though we want to deny ourselves uh, a better and safer community because uh, the steps we would need to take to make that happen would be problem solving steps that look at what these root causes are and people feel like that is being too soft on crime or something when reality that is being hardlined about helping ourselves be in safer places tomorrow. Yeah, and it's it's like, uh, you know, I think people also just have a problem with change or it's just like, well, punishment, that's how we've always done it. Like, how, what, you know, what if, how dare, you know, what if we, you know, well, that's just how it is. Like, we can't, think of any other way to solve the crime issue rather than like, you know, locking people up and, you know, da da da. And I think about the, um, you know, the, the broken windows policing. Oh yeah. You know, a a college professor supposedly left a um, car on a college campus and unlocked and, um, you know, people basically he, he was trying to prove that people were bad and that like you know once the car window was broken everybody would you know uh destroy the car and you know uh so you had to police every every single you know small act from a broken window needs to be policed well it turns out that study was fabricated basically he paid college students to destroy the car like all of this is built upon faulty assumptions and faulty data and on top of that just you know to me it just seems like is the right thing to do uh punish everybody to the most punitive extreme and we also obviously in america have a huge um differentiation between punishing you know different people especially you know uh, people of color versus white people getting different sentences for the same crimes. It's just like, 
I'm, I'm kind of spiraling here, but it's just like, I just, I think people, once you start getting to that point, people get so confused that they're just like, just punish, just punish them all. <laughs> yeah. Just like lock everybody up. I think that's true. I think once, I think there is a certain type of person where once you point, start pointing out the discrepancies in our judicial system and how there is no real justice, because if you look at all of these statistics that show that, yeah, if a white person and a person of color commit the same crime, like the person of color is, I can't remember the figure off the top of my head, but it's like three times as likely to serve prison time or something like that. Yeah, I think there are people that once you show them this evidence, like, look, our justice system is not doing justice. All these punitive measures we're taking, they're not making community safer, right? Like I said, like prisons make people 7% more likely to commit crime. None of this is the right move. And sometimes the, the, the takeaway people get from that is not oh, maybe we should try something different. It's, well, we're not doing it enough. <laughs> we got <laughs> to double down on the, th- on the things that don't work because eventually if you do them enough, they will work. Right. Like, I'm just like, uh. We got to make all the Taco Bells into prisons. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I think that's the that idea. Is, that is someone's dream out there, I'm certain. Yeah, and I think it's also interesting because if you look at like the lead poisoning in a generation, you can see um, that there are lines tied to like which direction people experiencing this poisoning went based on their socioeconomic status. Like you have people born into relative economic stability who encountered the same poisoning that made them potentially more aggressive, less empathetic. Um, And we see that a lot of them get into politics, right? That, what was it, the 56% figure of um, Congress people in the United States being baby boomers and also small business owners. The majority of business owners in the United States are baby boomers. And there are all these links showing that a lot of people who display these antisocial or narcissistic personality tendencies tend to excel in business, because it it requires in the United States a lack of empathy, um, like a cutthroated nature that that really you can see in people who struggle to form these good relationships in their lives in other capacities. And so you see maybe the people born into more relative economic stability went that route where they're displaying the same tendencies, um, psychologically speaking, as maybe the people who ended up being violent criminals um but obviously a lot of people who were violent criminals were born into lower socioeconomic status had fewer safety nets had fewer options available to them and probably were uh not given as many breaks by the system yeah um i would i would love to see all the all the data on that so so interesting it's interesting It's interesting, yeah, to think about like how if you have two children, for example, experiencing the same tendencies that you might look at and go, hmm, I don't know that that's going to be good for them or people they encounter later in life, how really just the number of resources you provide them can structure how their life ends up. And, you know, obviously, I think a lot of the people who own businesses and work in politics are, you know, not not evil but you know not good people it's not the best qualities that we see a lot of the times however they are more socially acceptable and if they do kill people it's through horrific foreign policy and domestic policy measures that are a lot more structured than the chaos we see associated with like random criminal violence if you if you steal you know five hundred dollars out of someone's purse you get more prison time than if you are you know, a, uh, you know, uh, 
you know, banker who steals $500,000 worth of people's, you know, yeah. money. Yeah, yeah, like the hedge fund guys. It was it was like, Bernie Madoff, yeah. right? I mean, he went to prison, but like think about who got like went to jail after uh, you know, the whole like 2008 like crash. Oh, like, yeah. Nobody went to jail. Martha Stewart went to jail for a year for insider trading. Yet no one in, you know. Yes, a lot of people got all these bailouts they were allowed to continue to succeed and that's the thing too we saw with the um ppp loans and like grants that happened at the beginning of covid there were a lot of these people who were ceos of major corporations who received this bailout money that theoretically was intended for them to continue to retain their staff pay their employees during the pandemic and a lot of these ceos instead gave themselves bonuses with the money and then went back to the government again and said oh i already spent that and what you see later that they spent it on was giving themselves millions of dollars on top of their already egregious salaries per year and they're like yeah yeah yeah, I spent that um on me but uh yeah the company's still gonna go under if you don't give us more money so how about you now give us more money and I'll actually use that you know for the employees and you know we see these types of things all the time they're clearly selfish clearly unscrupulous you know clearly should be criminal and yeah in our current system they're not so I think like the thing too about the lead poisoning or whatever whatever we look at affecting violent crime it depends on how you define crime Absolutely. And what crime is, you know, privileged over other, whereas, you know, white collar crime, you know, stealing, uh, you know, money from investors, um, Bernie Madoff pyramid scheme, you know, style shit is like more acceptable, less um, punitive than someone writing. You know, I feel like in the in the 80s, you would or 90s, you'd always hear stories of like, they wrote a $25 bad check and they spent life in prison. And you're like, what the <laughs> fuck? Like, and you know, it's just like, <laughs> what is happening here? I mean, it's kind of obvious in America. You're just like, what the fuck is happening with the judicial system? I mean, right. that's like no brainer, but it's just like, there is, it, it, it makes, I mean, I feel like it, it makes sense if you're trying to keep the power structure of, a very few select people um, control the means of production and can go to space while <laughs> the rest of us serfs, you know, toil in the Amazon mines. Right, exactly. Or toil in the prisons, you know. Mm-hmm. It, it, it very much, I mean, God, every episode I just end up in a, a capitalism rant. <laughs> it very much is all. It's the <laughs> capitalism. It's the capitalism. <laughs> um, no, but it's like these people who are successful in business and cutthroat and can do whatever they want rather than employ basic human empathy. It financially benefits them to uphold the punitive system where the more people you can put in our prisons for things, regardless of whether it actually helps our communities or not, the more of a potential labor force Victoria's Secret has to make their bras for 12 cents an hour, you know? And that's that's the priority. Nobody actually wants to solve these problems because for the people at the top, the current system is working, even though it's nothing that about about the justice system is actually making communities safer. It's all these tangential things, right? About like, you know, removing toxins from the air and giving people access to options. Like these are the things that we see that actually do help communities. And it's almost like, um, do you know about safety theater? I 
think a little bit. So safety theater is the idea that lots of times when you go places and they're doing things ostensibly for your safety, it doesn't actually have any effect on your safety. It's just there to psychologically make you feel safer in the process. So um, this has often been used to describe airports. Oh, yes. Like uh, taking your shoes off in the airport. Right. Um, yeah, going through the, the thing where you take out your computer and you put it in, well, in a little I, tray. I do remember oh, all the all the bad comedians being like, the underwear bomber. Are they going to make us take our underwear off on the plane? Oh, my God. I but, like, that. kind of like you're like, yeah, like, are, are they? Because they made us take the shoes off after the shoe bomber. Right. And when... When we, when I, when I was a child, um, you could walk straight up to the gate with, with your relatives who were flying. Like I was a kid, you could walk literally straight up to the plane if you wanted with people. I remember that we used to go to the airport to have lunch. Right. So, you know, and we do all these things. And the idea is about the, the safety theater is that it doesn't actually make flying safer, but it makes people feel like the airlines are taking it seriously and doing something Mm -hmm. to try to ensure people's safety. And I feel like, um, to a certain extent, the people who are not likely to end up in prisons, because let's be frank, right? Prisons are, are built to incarcerate people of color and mostly men of color. That's who disproportionately fills prisons, despite not making up, uh, a similar amount of the population. So the people then who are like us, you know, like white people, you know, with, I mean, I I came from a lower income background, but still like as a white woman, prisons aren't built for me. Right. So what, what they need to do is get me on board to support the prisons. And the way they do that is by turning the prisons into safety theater for me. They're like, look, we're keeping you safe. Look at the, the justice system's working. The people are in the prisons. Ooh, look at all the people in prisons. Aren't you safe? You're so safe. And, uh, you know, but I turn around and read like three articles and I'm like, I don't think it was the prisons. I think it was the lead thing, maybe. <laughs> then what is this here for? I don't like this. The prisons aren't helping me. Um, coming from a prison town where the majority of people with good jobs, like the vast majority worked at the federal prisons, the supermax prisons in uh Colorado in Florence and Canyon City um the the thing there was not like uh you know we need to keep people safe it was like these are people's jobs these are how you have like a decent middle class living like prisons were not about keeping people safe prisons were purely economic because everybody had a dad or uncle or mom or somebody they knew that was working in the prisons and you know, it's, it's brutal. It's rough. And I don't, I didn't get the idea that prison made anybody safer. I did not get that idea at all. To me, it was purely punitive. It was punitive and it was for economic reasons because those are good jobs. You know, right. you can make, you know, if you can have, I, I can't remember if there was a union, but I assume there's a union. You get good health care all that stuff. And I thought that was so eye-opening as a kid. I remember, you know, someone saying, well, you know, in this town, they could have chosen the college um, to here or the prison in like, you know, the 20s or, you know, yeah. some back in the day, 18... 18- but they were like, they chose the prison because that made more money. That made more economic sense. Where yeah. I was like, dang, I could have lived in a fancy... Colorado <laughs> college town instead of the most beautiful prison town in the world. It literally had 
Oh my God. Like, I hate to say this. It had a cute prison. Like, what? It was like a, a prison where they all it had a little train in front and there were like all these like flower gardens and the prisoners or the people who were, um, sorry, um, who were there at the prison. Yeah. Um, the, um, uh, I'm trying to remember the correct term, but the people who were in the prison would work the the grounds the grounds to make it look nicer for you guys passing by yeah it was really really strange it was really strange that's pretty surreal honestly (laughs) the thing one of the i mean most of us as we go i don't know actually most of us now that i'm thinking about it many of us as we go through life will encounter people who have been to prison or been been at least to jail and one of the things that stood out to me is um, I had a friend, a, fr- a friend of a friend, someone I knew for a long time who went to prison for uh, a D. DU- they got a DUI, which obviously very bad. Like, don't drink and drive your car. That's potentially a lethal weapon. Um, but, you know, it was one of those things where they're like, oh, I'm literally around the corner from my house. Like, it's the middle of the night. Nobody's out. I'm going to turn this corner. And um, they got stopped by somebody, by a police officer who saw them. So, you know, I'm not obviously excusing that behavior. It was bad behavior. And they ended up having to miss a court date because they couldn't not work during the court date, which created this whole whole snowball effect where they had warrant out for their arrest, whatever, and they ended up in prison um, for a short amount of time. And, you know, he was describing to me the treatment he received in prison, which was horrifying just like violence upon violence upon violence all day long every day like orchestrated by the guards the guards break people up into like different um like organizing structures based on their race and because he had a traditionally mexican last name but looked white they didn't know where to put him and they ha- he had a lightning bolt tattoo so they were like well if you squint your eyes that kind of looks like the ss symbol so we'll put you with the white supremacist so he's literally mexican with the white supremacist so fearing for his safety every single day and then on top of that the guards do all these horrifying things to pit people against each other they're telling him all day that they're scum of the earth that they're garbage that they're shit people blah 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 and he's like yeah while i'm in prison just being traumatized psychologically every day counting down the days till i can escape this hellhole you know it fearing for my safety using unsafe chemicals to clean the prison that led to him almost getting his eye taken out because of chemical exposure to this this substance that's been illegal for people outside of prisons to use for you know a decade or whatever they just give all the leftover stuff to the prisons to use all of this is happening and one of the prison guards who is there every single day making his life hell had the exact same thing happen. He had a, he, he was driving his car while drunk, but he hit somebody and killed somebody in the accident. So he's like, while I'm here for this DUI, which yeah, was not the smartest thing for me to do, but I didn't harm anybody. I was on an empty street at you know four in the morning, just going like maybe one block to my house. This guy killed somebody for the exact same thing. And because these were all of his buddies and because he was like a respectable member of society or whatever, he um, didn't even get like a manslaughter charge. It was just written up as like a bad, a bad accident. He's like, this is a guy who's literally kicking me every single day, telling me that I deserve to be here because I'm scum of the earth. But we did the same thing. Yeah, that that's tricky because you don't like on one hand, you're like, well, the the you don't want anyone to be tortured no nobody nobody i mean even though like you know sometimes you're like oh i want to you know wish but you it's not good for anybody to want to torture anybody but on the other hand if people are receiving such disproportionate um punitive um actions against them and sentences like it 
it it undermines the entire system and I don't know why people don't think of just scrapping it if it's so disparate you know? right right I also always say um you know sometimes you do bad shit and you get your shit rocked by your community but I feel like uh in that way justice should be personal and not legislated <laughs> totally yeah it's like it's it's so hard but it's like I it's another one of those things where I think that people are just like, well, that's just how it is. That's what how else, it's always been. What else can we do? And you're like, I think there's a different way here. And it's not that it's easy to just be like, snap of the fingers. It's it's different. Otherwise, you know, so many things would be changed. How you know? But I think if people started thinking like, you know, more and more like, hey, this isn't right. And we can like, we can do better. Yeah, we can do better. And we can start with, uh, you know, removing all the toxic chemicals from the air. Yeah, that's a good first start. So we do have a couple of voice messages from people who subscribe to our Patreon. Um, If you subscribe for $2 a month, you'll have access to a link where you can leave us voice messages. And we're doing it kind of like a call in advice segment. If you've got questions, if you've got problems and you just want some advice from a helping hand we can be that for you so i'm going to pull up now some of our uh, voice messages we received and we'll get into it hey fellow humanoids of the earth i want to use machine learning to decode the language of light of the bioluminescent creatures in the deep ocean all around the world it's the most common form of communication on the globe and we haven't spent the time to figure it out so I want to do that. You need about 10,000 images of any source to teach a algorithm to um, be able to identify it, such as what hello is for sea eels. I just made that up because um, <laughs> we don't know enough. So BBC has images and cameras in the deep ocean that can get these pictures that I could use. So I want to approach them and ask for access to these photos to put into a program to teach an algorithm how to understand the deep ocean. How would you approach a big corporation like that and actually be heard? Thanks. Okay, so obviously this is a field I'm not familiar with at all, but I think like the overarching question is, how do you get noticed and how do you break through when you feel like you're relatively um, like a nobody because you're starting something up and you're trying to have some sort of veil of legitimacy to these major organizations that you require some sort of information from or some sort of assets from. And I feel like that is a really challenging thing for anybody to overcome. I think that the most obvious thing is um, trying to form connections. If you know somebody who knows somebody who knows somebody, even that can be a good start. And I feel like to a lot of us, that kind of networking feels kind of scummy or sleazy and we don't want to do it or it feels disingenuous in some way. Um, That's something I personally have had to overcome in my life a lot is remembering that Talking to people about your professional goals and interests is not necessarily manipulative or lowbrow because many times other people also need to talk to others about their professional goals and interests. And sometimes you'll meet somebody and the two of yours align. And that's not a bad thing. And that's not necessarily a transactional relationship. But if you find yourself such an outsider to a community that you can't even begin to think of of a friend of a friend of a friend or a person of a person who can help you get access to what you need to help advance your 
professional goals or it sounds like this isn't even a professional goal. This sounds like a sincere interest to you. It's a passion. Um, you know, what do you do in that situation where you're starting from literally the outside banging on a door going, hey, let me in. I want to talk to you about something. Uh, and I think that one thing um, that I've noticed is persistence goes a long way. Uh, obviously, it's a lot different and a lot less significant than the work you're interested in doing. But even with my business, when people reach out to me consistently over a long period of time, I notice them. For example, um, the person who has worked for my company the longest uh, is my friend Kelsey. And I interviewed her for an internship because she just consistently had reached out to me on the internet for like months, maybe even a year. And by the time I was in a position where I was, for example, hiring for an intern, when she said, hey, I'm interested and submitted her resume, the name, I had, she had name recognition, she stood out to me. And um, that that's who I ended up hiring. And now it's been off and on seven or eight years of her working for my business in some capacity. So I think that persistence, even if you're on the outside, will help people take notice of you, even if you feel like, man, I'm coming across like a fan or, you know, whatever. I think you just have to kind of like put that aside. And if there's an organization you're interested in working with or getting information from, being active about reaching out to them, even just about little things like to show support or show your interest, I think can be a good first step to getting that that name recognition that makes people more likely to open up to you in the future because they kind of know who you are. I don't know. Kenna, what do you think? Um, that one is hard, but I, I do agree with you um, that sometimes, first of all, you just got to start somewhere. So, you you know, if you find people who have the same interests, sometimes it's just putting it out there. Like, just yes. being like, oh, I would like to meet someone, you know, in my case, uh, with who... Uh, also does uh, sells vintage clothing and can talk to me about it because I just I want to learn more about what they do and you know how to grow like my interests or maybe see if I can help them and they can help me I think that's like a normal human interaction when you have an interest but sometimes the hardest part is is uh getting started trying to just find connections and sometimes just putting it out there that you would like to find somebody with the same interests or even sometimes, you know, reaching out to the, the, the normal info email can, you know, help you like. Uh, right. I think that's the major thing. You can't um, be afraid to put it out there, even if you're worried that you might get not taken seriously or you might get ignored or you might even be reaching out to the wrong person. If you're like, hey, I'm trying to get access to the, this imagery for this project I'm working on. I need someone to take me seriously. And you're like, I'm just going to email this general like contact in yeah. info. I think that a big part of it is you have to like let go of the fear of doing the wrong thing. And I do think like kind of said, just, just communicating what you want and what you're working on to people um, that takes like a level of confidence, especially if you're relatively new to it and you're like, I don't know if I'm doing this the right way or if people will take me seriously. You do have to like, just, just put it out there. Just tell people like I had a friend many years ago who wanted to be a plus size model. And she was like, I don't know how I get into plus size modeling. And almost as a joke, I was like, I think you just put plus size model in your Instagram bio. Uh, and she was like, okay, 
okay, fuck it. I'm just going to do it. And she did. And she is a working plus size model all these years later. She literally almost instantly started getting contacted to do shoots. And I think that, you know, that's obviously very specific and it's not that easy for everybody. But I think there is value in just telling people what you're working on and what you want to do. And sometimes there's even a little bit of fake it till you make it. Like you got to believe in yourself and your project, even when people around you don't feel like they are. And it's hard to maintain that kind of momentum when um, you're unsure or you're like, how do I reach people? But you got to believe in yourself first for other people to be sold on it too. Yeah. And sometimes it's hard in the beginning to, and I, I don't mean this in the way of like, don't dream big, but it's like, sometimes you have to maybe lower your expectations when you're starting out. Like when you're like, for me, sometimes I'm like, yeah, I'm just going to do this huge thing instantly when it's like, I, I need to, for me personally, I need to take it step by step. Like, okay, what's the first thing? And it's like, oh, do the research. Maybe like I need to do this or do that. And sometimes for me too, this is for me personally, it's like the, the joy of the journey of finding out about something or working towards a goal rather than just the achievement access, uh, you know, aspect where it's like yeah. th- you have to also um, be into the process yeah. as well, if that makes any sense. No, it does. <laughs> it, it goes along with like allowing your goals to be long-term goals rather than putting the pressure on yourself of like instant success. Yeah, it's a, it's a marathon, not a sprint. Yes, it's a marathon, not a sprint. Yeah, I don't know if any of that is helpful. Obviously, the industries were we work in are so different, but I think that there is like a, a human element there of just trying to relate to other people in a semi-professional capacity, or even if it is, like I said, a passion and not a profession, whatever the case, um, I think that there is a lot of navigating that. And it's an interpersonal dynamic that we discount or we we don't take into account how seriously that will affect uh, and and guide our interests as we pursue them. So uh, I think that, yeah, it's an interpersonal issue and you just got to start by telling everyone you meet what you're working on. And one day somebody will probably say back like, hey, I know somebody for that. And, you know, it's not it's not scam- scammy or scummy or sleazy. That's just we're, we're social creatures, man. That's how it works. <laughs> If you too would like to talk to us, you can subscribe to our Patreon for $2 a month and you will receive a link to a place where you can leave us voice messages. We will give you all the advice we can muster from within us and some of it might even be helpful. In the meantime, thank you so much for listening.